Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. What does the future hold for Afghanistan post-2014? The American general in charge of the NATO mission is warning the country will still need international support. But a former military intelligence officer says Britain should never have gone. That's what should have happened in Afghanistan. Our government should have been big enough to say, you know what, this isn't our fight. And who's reading your emails? The debate rages between privacy and national security. The American general in charge of international forces in Afghanistan has warned the world not to abandon the country after 2014. General John Dunford will oversee the end of the NATO mission there. In his first broadcast interview this week, he warned democracy and women's rights could deteriorate if there isn't enough foreign support after the withdrawal of combat troops. What we've been doing on the ground has had the greatest influence on what's happened uh, in Afghan society and and the political transition. In the future, what the Afghan forces are going to be doing is what's going to be most important. And uh, later this month, we'll transition uh, to Afghan lead for security across the country. And it's their capabilities post-2014 that will ensure that the progress that we've made over the past decade is actually ensured. But do you see some of that progress as reversible, some of the progress that's been made as potentially being lost? David, I do. At this point, uh, I would tell you that we've made significant progress, uh, but we're not yet at the point where I would tell you that's completely sustainable. And that really is the focus of our effort over the next 18 months. And frankly, why I believe this is we should start now, especially with regard to the Afghan security forces, talking more about 2018 than 2014. Uh, that, that period of time will allow these uh, gains to be sustainable. And how many international troops will remain? I mean, we don't know the number yet. That's a political decision. Your predecessor, General Allen, has talked about a bridging force Uh, more troops remaining after 2014 than we have uh, expectations for. What do you think of the shape of the force at the end of next year? I think what's most important is there's been a commitment by NATO now to be in the four corners of the country. So the international community and and, uh, and NATO specifically will continue to have influence across the country uh, focused at the Afghan core level and uh, in the police super, uh, super police level and above. But that's not boots on the ground, is it? I mean, is there a a will within the military for some of the combat operations? I mean, you say combat operations will end, but some of the troops to remain? Uh, The the troops that remain here after 2014 will be in a train and advise and assist role. Uh, The fighting will be done by Afghan security forces. And quite frankly, uh, that's what's happening on the ground today. Uh, The vast majority of operations are being conducted by Afghans. As a military man, and finally, do you see political reconciliation with the Taliban as something that is valuable? I think eventually this war has to be resolved by political means. And uh, and the Afghan people will have to come to some accommodation with all Afghans that want to return back here. And if peace and stability is to be brought to Afghanistan, then I think some form of of, uh, political reconciliation is critical. But is it time for talks now? Uh, uh, David, I think what we're doing on the ground today sets the conditions for political reconciliation. I think when when the uh, enemies of Afghanistan look at the future and they see the uh, the probability of successful elections in 2014 when they see the growth of the Afghan security forces over the past few years and they look forward to 2015 I think the degree that they have any political space to accommodate with the Afghan people now would be the time that was General John Dunford speaking to the BBC's David Loyne. His comments coincide with the publication of a new book about the human and financial cost of the campaign. Investment in Blood is written by former military intelligence officer Frank Ledwidge, who as a civilian has advised the government on Iraq, Libya and Afghanistan. I spoke to him earlier and asked him what he thought of General Dunford's comments. 
General Dunford, it seemed to me, was making some sensible and straightforward and honest comments, as you'd expect from an American officer of his seniority. Um, I, who knows whether it'll be possible to sustain such military gains, insofar as there have been any, on the ground. But the real, really important matter, and he touched on this and only touched really, is that there's been no meaningful progress in governance. I think it's really important to remember that we're talking here about effectively the most corrupt country in the world that has a government. There's only two that are below it. One is Somalia and the other one is um, North Korea, neither of which well, nobody can get into North Korea and Somalia doesn't have a government at all. This is an intensely corrupt state. It's essentially the world's first narco state. That isn't being recognised. Uh, aside from that, though, the general's right. You know, all these gains are reversible and we need to understand that what has been achieved can easily be lost. What kind of international presence, and indeed is there a, a kind of international presence that can promote better governance once combat troops leave? I think from the UK's perspective, we have to decide what we want to achieve, which is something we haven't been doing over the last 10 years or so. There have been some really impossible objectives set, and everybody who's been involved in Afghanistan knows that strategies change year by year. So we need to be right, really firm. What do we want to achieve? What is in the UK's national interest in Afghanistan? I'd suggest there's very little. But as far as I know... What, well, what kind of impossible objectives are you talking about? Oh, well, building, building a, 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 a workable state either nationally or particularly in Helmand, you know, in a, in a very, very short period of time. It takes decades, centuries to build these things. It was totally unrealistic to expect that we'd have any impact at all in, in, in five or ten years. Why do you say the campaign has caused long-term damage to the international reputation of the UK military? Well, I'll take General Danat's words from 2009. He was talking about Iraq. He said, there's a recognition our national re and military reputation has been called into question in the eyes of our most important ally. And that was in 2009. What happened then, as everyone involved in Helmand knows, is that the British essentially had to be bailed out from 14 districts who we went down to looking after three by the US again, in very much the same way as happened in Basra. Now, this isn't a failure of professionalism, you know, at, at most soldiers' level, certainly not at the sort of field level. This was a result of impossible objectives set by commanders who, who, who really should... Well, there's no reason for them to should know better. They were simply not equipped to know better. In, indeed. I mean, you say it's, you, you're not criticising the individual soldiers. I suppose uh, on the reading of your book, um, soldiers have done uh, what they were asked to do and done it well. At best, they'll find your book perhaps meaningless to them, but at worst, they'll find it demoralising. I don't think they'll find it, find it meaningless. I think they'll find, they'll find uh, much of what they know already, but they'll also learn things which, 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 which are not in the public domain. And as for being demoralising, you know, our troops, and I was a soldier myself, I was in the regular service for four years and reserves for 14 years, you know, they've done a fantastic job, but they were asked to achieve the impossible, and it simply wasn't doable. On the figures, uh, you say the campaign has cost every taxpaying household £2,000. The MOD disputes these figures, saying they don't recognise them, no. and they say that you're just trying to sell a book and that no. you've, you've gathered this information from assumed or speculative sources. Yes, well, this is the Ministry of Defence. It's had its accounts rejected by the House of Commons Defence Committee for six years in a row that has been called by the same committee financially incompetent and that told that committee that it was not possible, and I'm quoting here, it's not possible to provide a meaningful estimate of the total costs in operations in Afghanistan. So if they've got a better figure, let's hear it. it My figures are based on their estimates, 
uh, extrapolated for their just two years. Their figure was 17.4 billion. Yeah, that, their figure was 17.4 billion as at April 2012. Things have gone on since then and will be going on to 2015. And that's the lowest possible estimate. It's called the additional costs uh, metric, which is the lowest possible e metric. And something else we might want to hear from the MOD. Looking forward into the future, what has been budgeted for, for the care of the wounded and the injured and the people who are going to suffer from this war for decades ahead? And you know what the answer is? Nothing. I mean, reading, reading into what you're saying, you'd assume or take from it that you think that too much money has been wasted on the campaign in Afghanistan. Do you think that Britain should have withdrawn earlier to save money, irrespective <coughs> of what had been achieved on the ground? Well, saving money is one thing. Saving lives is quite another, and limbs, and having people in wheelchairs, and, of course, all the, the Harmandis that have suffered as well. The French pulled out early, the, Holland, the Dutch did, and the Canadians did, to no great uh, you know, impact on their relationship with the US. The only reason we were there in the first place in such force was to preserve this so-called special relationship. We didn't go into Vietnam. We suffered nothing by not doing that. On the contrary, we lost nothing by it. That's what should have happened in Afghanistan. Our government should have been big enough to say, you know what, this isn't our fight. That was Frank Ledwidge, author of Investment in Blood, The True Cost of Britain's Afghan War. Uh, Christopher Lee, BFBS defence analyst, is with us as always. Hello, Christopher. Mm. This isn't our fight, he said. Well, yeah, and then he gets into this, you know, we didn't go into Vietnam, and that was all right. It, it, you, you can't bring in these sort of historical facts because the circumstances were quite different. This was the United Kingdom judged, the military judged, and most, I think, observers judge it was the UK fight to start with. Because for what of it was getting all about. rid of Al-Qaeda. It was what it was all about. But then this loose term, mission creep, that was the problem. And then, you know, the whole thing went on that length of time. I think we ought to be sort of looking at the future. Um, the most important thing that will happen is next year, when the presidential elections come around... President Karzai cannot, unless the system, the constitution is doctored in the meantime, cannot stand again. Is that again. likely that the constitution will be changed so he could stand again? Well, if you've got, you know, if you've got an old pound note, you could probably put it on it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't know. But mm. I suspect not. Karzai, his time, uh, is time to go. What happens after Karzai, what happens to the strength of the, of the Pushtun uh, influential groups in in Afghanistan, where the warlords are, what about Taliban? Taliban, for example, at the moment is, is coercing uh, 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 serving policemen to do this inside shooting. And that's what happened, for example, yesterday. And so we've got already, and we will get more of it, we will, we will be getting more examples of how this is likely to develop from 2014, 15, 16 onwards. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, Haig and Kerry seem to be the best of friends during their Washington talks, and we talk prism, spying, and the Chancellor's cat. The FBS Sit rep. Turkey has been gripped by the biggest street protest since the Islamic-leaning Justice and Development Party, AKP, took power more than a decade ago. The protest began last month as a protest to stop the demolition of one of Istanbul's rare green spaces, Gezi Park. Well, I'm joined now by Middle East expert Hajir Temurian. Hello, Hajir. Hello. Um, can you make a comparison with what's happening in Turkey with the Arab Spring? No, I don't think so. I think... Uh, uh Turkey is definitely a semi-democratic state. It's true, for example, that possibly 20% of the population, the Kurds, are, are still not got 
a tenth of the cultural rights that, for example, Scotland here... But still, three times they have elected democratically, haven't they, in Turkey? Definitely. Every correspondent in Turkey at the moment tells us that Rajab Tayyip Erdogan, the Prime Minister, the Islamist Prime Minister, has got still huge support in the country and uh, he is preparing the way to become a very powerful president next year and people are afraid that he might abolish the premiership and give himself even more sweeping powers. Do you think that these kind of protests have the potential to become something bigger? No, not at the moment. I think uh, the demonstrators, many of them, have realised that uh, they, even though, of course, um, there are many people in the middle classes who are worried about this creeping Islamism, for example, restrictions put on the sales of alcohol, distribution of alcohol, etc. Uh, this worries a lot of people. But nevertheless, we haven't reached that point where the middle classes are ready to turn their back on the uh, uh, Justice Party of Mr Erdogan. Christopher, do you think what's happening in Turkey will have any kind of implications for the countries bordering it? If you look at it, let's say, from Turkey right round to the Gulf states, there is a sense of not simply unrest, but the instability within each country and each section of the region spreading into the other. Syria is a very good example, which drags in Iran, it drags in the Gulf states, and it drags in, 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 Lebanon. in Lebanon. What I think is important about Turkey, from our point of perspective, and I'm not sure, I don't know if um, Hashir would agree with this, Turkey, remember, is one, a member of NATO, as we are. It's a member of the uh, Atlantic Council, as we are. Most importantly... Turkey, with all the consequences this will in, in, in endure, is, is aiming to be a member of the European Union. That will change our perspective of the consequences of what's happening in Turkey and the consequences of a further uh, taking of powers by Prime Minister Erdogan. And I think that's particularly important. That's the long-term effect. So, so could the prospective um, membership of the EU, could that be in danger by what's happening there at the moment, Hajir? The French and the Germans have definitely said that we do not want Turkey. Turkey has got some 80 million people, and uh, in many parts of it, particularly in the Kurdish southeast, uh, the standard of the living is very, very low. There would be huge fear of mass immigration into Europe. I think the French and the Germans definitely have put their faces against that. But on the other hand, I was going to say that at the moment, Turkey is crucial to any calculations about what to do in Syria. Last night, um, I felt that Mr. K- Mr. Kerry, the Secretary of State for the Americans and our own Secretary of State, Mr. William Hague, were moving towards doing something in Syria because Syria, the Syrian government, the uh, government army, together with the Lebanese Hezbollah, together with the Iranians, who are now uh, told, said to be possibly pouring revolutionary guards into Syria, together with Russian arms, are poised to take Aleppo this weekend, and uh, that would mm. mean that uh, the fight would go on, poss- possibly, in, if it goes on at this rate, possibly five million refugees in the next door countries, Turkey, Lebanon, uh, Iraq, etc. And who would pay for that? The West. The in- West is panicking at the moment. I think we are moving towards some sort of help for the for the uh, Syrian Free Army. Indeed, indeed, we are going to talk a little bit about Syria a little later in the programme. Um, let's just move on, though, to a country bordering Turkey, another one, uh, Iran. Elections there tomorrow. Christopher, um, the West will be very interested in what's happening here. 
Yes, um, and the thing we have to remember when we're trying to judge this, uh, we must beware labelling people in this election and also the types. In we terms talk, of reformers or conservatives, etc., that kind of who's thing. who's a moderate, who's a left or who's a right. Um, what we should be thinking about is that the people in power, we have to watch whether the people, the Itellers, the council, whether they're actually willing to shift to, the, to one way or t'other. It's called political pragmatism, and that is the judge uh, the thing we have to judge. At the moment, you have uh, Jalili and um, uh, Veliati, uh, probably the front runners in most people's minds. This is two of the. Is it is it six now who are standing, Hajir? Yes, six, and there's one only so-called moderate left in the land, if I still use such <laughs> You're allowed Slap that, your wrist Hajir. for that one. Yeah. Christopher won't be um, pleased with you. The, the cleric Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani, is uh, criticising the Ayatollah's foreign policy uh, in vague terms. He doesn't dare, of course, to say it. In but the supreme terms. leader, Hajir, will decide That's if it right. goes wrong, he will find a way of actually saying, this is my boy, this is where we go. That's and Hajir, Hajir how are the Iranian people feeling about this election? Are they going to be turning out in force? Are they going to be well, abstaining? Will yes. there be any protests? They are, they are facing a dilemma, millions and millions of them. And I'm, of course, m m I was born and brought up in Iran. Millions of people are saying, what if we go to the um, ballot box to elect cleric Rouhani because he's a bit sounding better than the other five and yet the Ayatollah gets his own man Jalili out of the ballot box as he did four years ago with Ahmadinejad thinking Ahmadinejad would be a little servant of his. What if we were to be used? I think however lots of people will also be afraid if in a, in a village in a small community if you do not vote you're your certificate will not be stamped and therefore the regime will know that you did not vote. Some people will vote, but how many we do not know. And the, uh, as, as Christopher said, the Ayatollah has already said, I decide foreign policy, I decide nuclear policy, I, am, I want Syria not to collapse, etc., etc. So anyone who gets elected must know the red, my red lines, they must not cross it. So right. we are going to face the situation when the Ayatollah will, one way or another, get his man out of the ballot box. All right, Hajit Tamourian, thank you for your time today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The United Nations says it now believes at least 93,000 people are being killed in Syria since the conflict began in March 2011. The figure is 30,000 higher than the last estimate issued in January. The continued fighting in Syria and the country's humanitarian crisis have been the main focus of discussions between the Foreign Secretary, William Hague, and his US counterpart, John Kerry. After the talks in Washington, Mr Kerry said both countries remained committed to supporting opposition forces in Syria and working towards a Syrian-led diplomatic solution. We are deeply concerned about the dire situation in Syria, including the involvement of Hezbollah, as well as Iran, across state lines in another country. So we are focusing our efforts now on doing all that we can to support the opposition as they work to change the balance on the ground. Mr Haig said Britain and its allies must be prepared to offer more help with Syria's humanitarian crisis. We will all have to do more in the coming weeks to assist with the immense humanitarian effort that is necessary. We agreed today, of course, that our priority remains to see a diplomatic process in Geneva that succeeds in reaching a negotiated end to the conflict. 
but we will have to be prepared to do more to save lives, to pressure the Assad regime to negotiate seriously, and to prevent the growth of extremism and terrorism if diplomatic efforts are going to succeed. Well, we're joined now by Richard Norton-Taylor, who writes on defence and security affairs for The Guardian. Hello, Richard. Hello. All looked very pally in Washington last night. Have Britain and US agreed on how to handle Syria yet? Um, no, I don't think they have, actually. But um, I can tell you that, uh, although I, was meant, I think we were talking about something else, weren't we? Uh, that's what I was brought to the studio about. But let's, let's just say this. Um, I think there's very few people in the Whitehall machine, in government, who uh, will support any uh, military um, uh, involvement uh, at all in Syria. And Christopher, um, behind the scenes, we were talking briefly last week about Susan Rice being appointed as President Obama's national security advisor. Is there going to be a shift in foreign policy, and in particular on Syria? Will she get the influence that that she may well uh, want? I think that she um, and part of a new team that's at the United Nations have already shown signs that they will influence far more. Susan Rice went into the Oval Office a week ago today and she said to Obama, listen, you have to decide whether Syria is all about a sort of a humanitarian, a sort of African humanitarian type operation, or it's rather like an Iraqi operation where you want to change, regime change. You've got to do that. What's fascinating is that Operation Northern Storm, which is the Syrian operation to take Aleppo, which started last night with the blocking off of the supply routes into Aleppo, along that road, uh, Homs-Aleppo Road, Um, she is saying we may have to rethink what we're doing. And I, th- I don't know, Richard, Re- you rethink, listen to it. Rethink meaning uh, what? I mean, what, what? Re- well, you see, if, if, you, if you think about it, we, we've been saying, look, we'll supply weapons. We think we should supply weapons. The British have been in the lead, perhaps with the French, of trying to get to the EU to lift the embargo on this sort of thing. Uh, what is happening now, for the first time that I've heard, is that, A, the Kerry-Hague um, uh, uh, press conference or the st- public statements basically we're saying we haven't got a clue what we're doing or what what we should be doing we know what we want to do the second thing is that there's a lot of mind changes like a load of dinner bells that you can hear being rung they're changing their minds because they're beginning to say perhaps perhaps al-assad may not be losing there was a report in the papers yesterday, um, in the Sun newspaper, saying that uh, David Cameron had been informed that uh, thousands of Russian troops have secretly gone in and that at stake here might be some kind of uh, proxy war should uh, Britain and America put any troops uh, into Syria. Do you see that that's the case, Richard? Well, it's, uh, it, I mean, this thing, this can escalate. Uh, I, I mean, of, arming the rebels rather than putting uh, troops in, sorry. Uh, uh, out, of, out of all proportion, and it is, it's proxy already is on Assad's side, as we know, with Hezbollah in Iran in, involved. Now, um, the Russians are threatening all sorts of things, um, and it, they're, they're certainly uh, so, and supplying weapons. And, and what would, and I think that's what, you know, Whitehall, the British establishment, uh, let's say officials, senior officials in the National Security Council here in London, in the Foreign Office, uh, thanks to Spooks, MI6 and so on, and certainly in the Ministry of Defence, are actually asking the question, what the, the effect, what positive effect, what practical effect will arming the rebels do now? Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll just, because, because the more you, you give to, to, to well, two points, one is that which, which rebels do they go to? Do they go to the, the Al-Qaeda supporters, as it were, or the, 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 the other more secular uh, uh, rebel groups, or 
Um, and it will just encourage more weapons um, uh, uh, being uh, being used by Assad and, and from Iran or, or Russia and so on. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the real, it's, a real, it's very difficult to overestimate the concern in London about what Cameron and Haig, William Haig, who is regarded as a bit of a neocon, um, uh, uh, rarely want with their rhetoric or their open politicians agonising, if you like, um, lead to action which they'll later regret. Okay, uh, another subject touched on during William Hague and John Kerry's talks, the one that you think he wants to talk about today, Richard, that you're booked for, it's PRISM, of course. Uh, Ex-CIA worker Edward Snowden has claimed US agencies gathered and shared phone and web data with its allies. The secret programme is reported to give the US National Security Agency, NSA, and the FBI easy access to the systems of nine of the world's top internet companies, including Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Yahoo, and Skype. All deny giving the US government direct access to their servers. Well, earlier this week, Mr Haig told Parliament that allegations that GCHQ circumvented the law to gain information on UK citizens were baseless. Um, Richard, how much snooping on web and phone data is going on and is it necessary? Well, a tremendous uh, is going on, a tremendous lot is going on. They have giant computers in GCHQ um, uh, in Cheltenham, which is linked to uh, NSA, National Security Agency, ones in America, and uh, Men With Hull in North Yorkshire, and, every, and another listening post. But th- th- So the question really is, uh, what does ba- direct access mean? What does backdoor mean? What does circumventing the law mean? The crucial question is whether law uh, can be respected and kept up with the growth in intrusive technology, if you like. Um, and how can the law effectively control the intelligence agents, i.e. the human beings, to control the uh, computer capabilities, i.e. harvesting, trawling up all this information. These are, these are questions. So when we talk about circumventing the law, or William Hague says GCHQ is not circumventing the law, um, it, that is, avoids the question of the law itself, and the law is actually, at the moment, very weak. Um, and the other question, of course, is how the Americans can... It's quite interesting how people don't realise, I think, that the Americans allow much more intrusive, but legal, but intrusive uh, of uh, uh, legislation, i.e. getting into um, data mining and so on, um, rather um, even more than... That's the official law and private courts, which the British don't have. And the second big point, really, is can the Americans go after foreigners, including British people, uh, without telling us and without ministers here knowing. Yeah, Christopher, what makes someone a target? Um, it's... If you start with the obvious ones, like you've got a list of guys that you're suspicious about, target. Somebody comes up and says a trigger word on on a bit of gizmo, a bit of IT, that person becomes a target. I think the crucial point here is technology has jumped ahead of the law. Yes. For example, if you wanted to go and tap the phone of somebody, a suspect in the United Kingdom in London this afternoon, you'd have to get a judge. You'd get the Home Office, you'd have to get a judge. You'd have to get permission to do it. You don't do that with technology because mm. technology is listening in there anyway. But to specifically target an individual, the United Kingdom has got certain laws which at the moment it tries to acknowledge. The United States, as Richard just said, well, that might be, they might already sort of ennoble that character. The point here in the United Kingdom, and it's the bigger point which will never be satisfied, and that is who classified something as secret and who keeps it secret 
long past its by, perhaps by its uh, sell-by date. Now, on a lighter note, um, it was reported this week that the Chancellor George Osborne's cat, Freya, may be spying for the Chinese. Downing Street insiders apparently concerned that she's returned to number 11 after a two-year absence. And over the past few months, uh, the cat's been found in the most secure area of the Foreign Office, apparently, inside the Cabinet Room in number 10, and even trying to break into the Treasury. Um, Christopher, um, it sounds really bizarre, doesn't it? Um, Does this kind of thing ever really happen? Well, it depends with your uh, sort of depends your political stance uh, of the cat. Um, I think that I mean, looking at Freya, who is a gruesome-looking moggy, quite <laughs> frankly, who is the grumpiest-looking cat that I've ever seen outside of Arlo, the great grey tabby, as if as your sort of uh, peculiar cat's uh, poetry will have told you. Um, I think, that in fact, that uh, this one wasn't wasn't spying for the Chinese. I think it wasn't spying for anybody else but the MOD, who wants to be inside the Treasury to find out what the defence budget is going to be. And Richard, you can back me up on this, the most investigative Absolutely. reporter I know. Well, I think uh, the feline characteristics may be better as, uh, for spies than Briefly, canine Christine. ones, but uh, there have been other rather weird examples of spies. I remember a, a, right. a double-glazing uh, guy in the Soviet trade Richard. And the MI6 rock, of course, in Moscow. And is. there we must leave it. I look forward to talking to you about this much yeah. more in future. Richard Norton-Taylor, yeah. Christopher Lee, thank you very much for your time. Bye-bye for now.